Welcome back to our After the Show segment. This is the part of the program, frankly, I enjoy the most insofar as we have an opportunity to really delve into some, I think, real-world questions pertaining to the diagnosis and treatment of bipolar. It truly is an art. We've been discussing the science. Let's now get into some of the art of the, of the business. First question to either Dr. Citrome or Dr. Sachs. This is a question saying that we've been focusing a lot on weight gain related to the use of atypical antipsychotics. And this question is saying that we are now using more conventionals antipsychotics, but my residents and young physicians are now not aware of how to monitor EPS or TD. What's your response to that? Same thing that we do for weight. It's called a scale. We call it the, in, involunt- uh, the abnormal involuntary movement scale, or the AIMS. <clears throat> That's something that we do every six months with patients who are on those treatments. I'm really surprised at the question. Uh, all it takes is one patient with a, an acute dystonic reaction before you get really worried about using uh, conventional agents again. Yeah. And I'm wondering, it's just a matter of time. And the other issue is that uh, second-generation antipsychotics are not immune from EPS. Right. And you can right. still see it, particularly with some agents at higher doses. So it's important to be able to recognize the tremor and rigidity uh, associated with uh, antipsychotics and akathisia, to be aware of that possibility too, that inner restlessness that some, sometimes patients have, that uh, if you mistake that for anxiety and, or agitation and you increase the dose of the antipsychotic, you actually make it worse. Right, that's a good point. You know, we, we focus on the neurological toxicity with conventionals and they also apply to atypicals. Where the two differ, in, in my view of the evidence and my experience as a clinician, is conventionals are not reliable antidepressants. And if anything, they induce a syndrome that is phenotypically indistinguishable from depression in the bipolar population. And there's actually a very small randomized controlled trial that has reported that. So I think we're talking about avoiding neurological toxicity, also want to reduce the clinical toxicity of depression. And, and, and that's an, that in my experience, that has been as much a hazard as has been the neurological issues. You know, you raise a good point. You know, in the, in the old days, uh, when someone would come in acutely manic, we would give them a lithium and a conventional antipsychotic. And that was our standard treatment. But they wouldn't continue on the conventional antipsychotic. It didn't add any additional value. Right. Yet we have uh, uh, medications available today in the second generation class, which are approved for the maintenance indication of bipolar disorder in combination with lithium or divalproex. So they are quite different in terms of their mood-stabilizing properties. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I guess I'm probably older than both of you. Uh, and you, know, you we talk, younger. We talked before about FDA indications. If I'm not wrong, Melaril has an FDA indication for depression. At the end of the 60s, it was very popular to use combination treatments that were things like right. uh, profenazine and amitriptyline. And there was a reason for that, and it was because people were seeing these antidepressant responses when you gave people dopamine-blocking agents. So there, there may well be something to it, uh, because those observations were, were plentiful at the end of the 60s. Yeah. I think it was our concern over TD and, and acute dystonia that you raised that made us realize that, that whoa, we got better ways to, to get an antidepressant effect rather than put patients at that risk. Yeah. And now we have a a set of options where that risk is, is not so mm-hmm. bad. Well, the, the first-generation antipsychotics are also not all the same. Some mm-hmm. actually look like atypicals mm-hmm. in terms of binding affinities, and, mm-hmm. and some absolutely do not. Like haloperidol, for mm-hmm. example, is the prototypical mm-hmm. first-generation agent. Mm-hmm. You don't expect that one 
to be an antidepressant, uh, nor, uh, in fact, you're worried about inducing dysphoria in patients with that agent. Question around depot medication in bipolar disorder. Is there a role for depot medications in the treatment of bipolar disorder? You know, I, I am a fan of any approach that can reduce the number of good decisions a patient might have to make. I see the same idea with abuse, right? One decision a day about drinking. And we talked about how hard it is, not just for our patients, but even for ourselves if we had to take medicine to get above that 75% adherence rate. Well, if you have a, a treatment that you can take as a depot and you need to only make one decision every other week or every four weeks or six weeks to be on treatment, I think that's a wonderful option. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I will we'll state we didn't focus on the maintenance treatment of bipolar disorder during our, our broadcast, but uh, the respiratory long-acting injectable is approved as a maintenance treatment in bipolar disorder. So there is evidence for an, a, a depot atypical antipsychotic in bipolar disorder. Measurement-based care is something that we focused on through our, throughout our program, and we spoke strongly uh, to its, uh, its offerings. Will it eventually, or is it already, tied to reimbursement? We have a collaborative care initiative where what happens, patients come and we do the assessment. Uh, they're always taken care of a, by another doctor, sometimes uh, within Massachusetts, but often other places in the U.S. and even outside the U.S., and we continue the measurement electronically and send the measurement reports to the local doctors. Right now, that's not reimbursed by any insurance, unfortunately, but it's a very nice kind of system to use. If you do the scales and you can watch over this, you can make some very uh, nice treatment decisions based on following the numbers. Mm-hmm. You have to have that. Right. In a way... Uh, services like ours are a way to outsource that measurement the way you might outsource getting the, EK, the EKGs on your patients. Here's a question around uh, the issue of personality. Gary, you spoke to this during our program earlier, uh, and the question is, what would we recommend for a quick assessment of personality that has good reliability and good validity? Well, I, I mentioned the five-factor scale, so there's a 60-item a version of that scale uh, which actually I, I think has been validated in 60 countries mm-hmm. uh, around the world. And to my knowledge, uh, the NEO in its long version and its short version are the best validated personality measures. But they do not give you personality disorder diagnoses per se. They just give you these trait measurements. Mm-hmm. How long does it take to administer? Less than five minutes. Yeah. And what's interesting is that there is some evidence, you mentioned this here during your presentation, that there's, a, if you will, a personality signature uh, right. to the bipolar population. And it, it's not only, uh, you know, a variable that we think about uh, as, we, as we attempt to refine the portrait of bipolar, but it may be an important predictor of response to treatment. Personality may be an important predictor of side effects to treatment. Uh, just last month in the archives of general psychiatry, there was a study in major depressive disorder with paroxetine versus placebo where we expected paroxetine would beat placebo and depression, indeed that was the outcome. But what was the thunder was that when personality measures were looked at between the two groups, the changes in the personality dimensions were much more robust. And so they may in fact be a, a outcome we should be thinking about in our clinical studies. But there's something about the response to treatment, and you talked about this earlier, predicting response, predicting side effects. 
and personality, I think every clinician out there knows, plays some role. But what is that role that's playing in it? And the NEO is something we've started yeah. to use in our practice as well. Here's a question around the use of medication. What would we recommend for a hypomanic patient who's had repeat, repeated major depressive episodes, this person who's had a hypomanic episode with recurrent depressive episodes, is currently being treated with citalopram 40 milligrams, as well as trazodone 25 milligrams, and is doing well? God bless them. They're doing well. Not broke, don't fix it? I, I would just let them alone. Okay. Yeah, this sometimes happens. Of course, with individual patients, you have response to medicines that in a group of patients you don't you know, see a great success with. But for that one individual, if that works, then that's great. But I question the history. You know, several episodes of this and that. I wonder what they were on then. Uh, if they were on the same thing, I would wonder, well, why are they still on this mm -hmm. combination? Well, I'm not going to let either one of you get away that easy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this a little further. Bipolar 2 disorder. Patients been diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder on the basis of recurrent depressive episodes as well as hypomanic episodes. And you're confident in the diagnosis based on history. Would you consider antidepressant monotherapy at the start of therapy, given the fact that the predominant presentation has been one of depression? You know, from an evidence-based point of view, I don't think you could roll that out. I think it would be on the menu of reasonable choices. Uh, but saying that, you have to realize that there is no Category mm -hmm. A treatment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for bipolar 2 depression. So given that we're, we're necessarily at B or C, uh, antidepressants as monotherapy uh, probably are reasonable choices. Uh, I think we've all done it, and we've all done it inadvertently. When we didn't acknowledge uh, the hypomania right. or right. the patient didn't report it because they have no insight into it, and so it misses us. And after a while, though, uh, when you run into problems, then you begin to think and you ask the, the right questions, and then you discover that, well, maybe that's the reason why they didn't do so well. Uh, but sometimes they continue to do well, and it never comes up. What is happening neurochemically to a patient who becomes hypomanic or manic on an antidepressant? That's one of the questions. You know, the, the data we have on this is really limited, and some of it's inferred from animal models, all of which are really very poor. Uh, but I, I do think you can see some patterns. You can see some patterns that relate to uh, measures that, that go along with temporal lobe activation, uh, that go along with less communication between the frontal lobes and, and the uh, subcortical areas. So we can see that there is disrupted communication uh, between areas of the brain that are important in emotional processing, and whether you see that as anatomically uh, related or biochemically related, there's no question that those systems are disrupted and that, that that is going on during mania. Okay. Well, we have a call from Dr. Upton in Alexandria. Hello, Dr. Upton. Hello. Good afternoon. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the diagnosis of bipolar illness in, say, older teens, uh, young adults who are often in the throes of depression, confusion, anxiety, irritability, and the, the whole gamut? Great question. Prime time for the diagnosis so that the peak age of onset if you're taking five-year intervals in the life cycle, uh, would be uh, age 15 to 19. 
So the place you've put your finger on the life cycle is the most common time for people have their first episode. Right, the bipolarity index may be quite helpful here uh, in terms of uh, getting more information about family history as well. Let me, let me follow that up. Pediatric bipolar or prepubital specifically, is it real? You know, that gets us maybe to discussing one of the DSM-5 ideas, and that is to take out the BPNOS diagnosis from people who have a lot of emotional instability and dysphoria, and instead of calling that bipolar NOS, to call it mood instability with dysphoria. And I, I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, this is a question less for yourself. Uh, it's a question about NNT. You had mentioned number needed to treat, number needed to NNT, uh, acronym during the presentation earlier. What is it? How do you measure it? Well, NNT is actually a, a very easy-to-calculate number that tells you how many patients you need to treat with one intervention rather than the other intervention before encountering one additional outcome of interest. So let's say you uh, want to increase uh, your chances of seeing an, a response to a drug, and drug A results in response 50% of the time, and drug B results in response 40% of the time. How many patients do you need to treat with drug A instead of drug B before encountering one additional responder? So it's hard to tell, just 50%, 40%. The difference there is 10%. So the difference in response rates between drug A and B is 10%. Well, the number needed to treat is simply the reciprocal of 10%. So you divide 1 by 0.1, it's 10. So NNT is 10. You need to treat 10 patients with drug A instead of drug B before you encounter one additional responder for A. So you have to make your decision. Well, is it worth that extra chance of getting a response? Uh, it might be, depending on the uh, tolerability of the two drugs for that individual patient, their past history of response, and so on. What makes NNT nice is that it's easy to calculate. You have two rates of an outcome that you're interested in, rate for drug one, rate for drug two, or for placebo. You subtract those two rates, you take the reciprocal, and that's the number needed to treat. I, you know, I, I, I'm not a statistician, so I have a much more simple-minded approach to this. If the difference between two drugs is 10% or 25%, I think of them like cereal boxes. I'm going to get 25% free. How many cereal boxes do I have to buy before I get one more than I would have had before? Right. I got to buy four, I got to buy 10. And I can make that judgment about how much I'd like to do that based on how much a cereal box costs anyway. Yeah. You know, what's the cost of treating or not treating somebody? What's the difference in outcome? And to know that I have to do something 10 times to get one more extra, if it's something easy, I'm really happy to do it. If it's something hard or, or maybe risky, then maybe not so much. Right. Uh, it, it's also a good way to explain things to patients. Uh, for example, a common question I'm asked is, do I have to keep on taking my antipsychotic? A person with schizophrenia asks me that. And I say, well, the chance of relapse without an antipsychotic in two years is, without an antipsychotic, is about 75%. That's very high. With an antipsychotic, it's about 25%. It's not zero. So there's no guarantee of avoiding relapse. But the difference, 75% versus 25%, is 50%. One divided by 0.5 is two. For every two patients who stop their medicine, you'll encounter one additional relapse patient. Yeah, it really so, puts it in context. Yes. This is followed up less 
the National Institutes of Clinical Excellence, NICE, yes. mm -hmm. in the UK. It's a body that, among other things, oversees the or adjudicates the efficacy of treatment interventions. Yes. The NICE organization has proposed that NNTs of single digit, 10 or less really, mm -hmm. are considered clinically significant. What's your response to that? Uh, I think uh, that is an accurate statement depending on the outcome that you're measuring. It has to be a clinically meaningful outcome and it has to be achieved in a safe way. And actually the FDA, if you look at all the drugs that they've approved for the major mental disorders, uh, either as an adjunct or as a monotherapy, they all have single digit NNTs compared to placebo. Uh, ranging from a low of three, which is a very strong effect size, to uh, an NNT of around 10. Yeah. And just to put that in context, the, the NNT for a lipid-lowering agent to reduce a cardiac event is over 40. Yes. So it really speaks to the efficacy of the interventions. Right. If you're trying to avoid a, a heart attack, a stroke, or a death, you're going to tolerate an, an NNT that's a double-digit or even a triple-digit because the outcome is so dire. Right. We've sp been speaking about medication treatments. We know that behavioral approaches uh, have a role in bipolar disorder. What behavioral treatments are proven effective in bipolar disorder? What's the data supporting their use? Hmm. So there, there are a number of psychosocial treatments that have shown efficacy for certain things. It's probably most important to start by recognizing that there are certain things that absolutely none of them claim to help with and that is acute mania. There's no psychosocial intervention that is recommended to be started uh, during a manic episode. CBT and interpersonal social rhythm therapy uh, and uh, this family therapy that David Mikulitz does all showed efficacy in step for treating acute bipolar depression and also all showed efficacy in terms of lengthening the periods of remission. And those have been found in other studies, uh, one or more for each of those as well. So we consider those to be evidence-based treatments and something always to recommend to patients. Basic psychoeducation can be critical also in helping the patient identify uh, some triggers that may precede a, uh, a relapse. So you can intervene early uh, before it becomes a full-blown relapse. When you have one or two uh, sentinel symptoms, uh, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, you can get at it. But yeah. you have to teach the patient what to get at. Right. We have a question here, and this is a very common narrative, an unfortunate narrative. It's a 20-year-old female, 28 years old, with a history of sexual abuse. Mother has had bipolar disorder, and the patient is presenting with post-traumatic stress as well as symptoms of bipolar depression. What are our treatment recommendations in that case? And I just want to just... Uh, just start first by saying we, we, we know that the rates of childhood adversity are very high in bipolar. Uh, that's distal adversity. Proximal adversity, meaning more recent losses and stresses, are also very high. Uh, many groups have looked at this, and uh, rates in the order of 30 to 70 percent have been reported in terms of childhood adversity, assault, abuse. And we know that it is a nonspecific risk factor for a host of psychiatric and medical adversities downstream. So bipolar depression with a traumatic history with PTSD symptoms. Treatment recommendations. Well, I think one of the things to recognize is that the most treatable thing you mentioned is the bipolar depression, and that's hard enough. So we would focus on that. We would recognize that a lot of the well-meaning interventions that bring back the trauma 
if there's ever any place for them, it's not during the acute treatment phase for a depressive episode because those can be destabilizing. So we would try to address the depression to the degree necessary to make it possible for a patient to do another form of treatment mm -hmm. uh, for their PTSD. We wouldn't hesitate to give them pharmacological support, let's say, to deal with some of the, uh, the particularly acute symptoms of their PTSD, whether those are sleep problems or nightmares, right. what have you. But otherwise, we would not be dealing with PTSD until the bipolar depression was treated. Yeah, a symptom-based approach would be critical here, and identifying which symptoms impact function the most and get this person back to you know, having a more reasonable life. And it may be one symptom or of another that you're going to put a priority on. It really depends on the individual patient. Right. Okay, we only have a few minutes left. We'll try to get through some more questions if we can. What's the best way to manage a bipolar patient who does not want to lose the manic portion of their illness? I think this is speaking to the patients who like the highs. What's your response? You know, part of the issue here is identifying for the patient and helping with their, uh, their uh, behaviors that got them into trouble and trying to develop some insight uh, into that, that it's not all, all good. Uh, but it, it can be very difficult when uh, they don't have that many uh, disaster, uh, disasters uh, or consequences that were particularly painful, uh, but they just irritate everybody else around them. So, you know, this relates to a general concept called validating objections. Sometimes people object to treatment because they're going to lose the highs, and what they've imagined losing, their creativity, maybe they weren't so creative mm -hmm. after all, and maybe mm -hmm. the creativity isn't tied to mania. But in working through that, one of the books I could recommend is a book called Getting to Yes that talks about principled negotiation to deal with those kinds of issues. I think it's very effective. It's an extremely useful thing to do with patients so that you can talk through and say, let's just try to understand this. You don't want to lose the creativity. And maybe there's a way to not lose the creativity and also be protected against the mania. And that's aligning with the patient's interests and usually a doable thing. Okay. Is there a role for omega-3 or fatty acid to fish oil type treatments in bipolar disorder? Well, there's some forms of omega-3 that are excellent in salad dressing. And <laughs> They're a little fishy, though. Yeah, well, like I say, it's some yeah. forms, they come from, uh, from uh, vegetable sources. You know, the idea of omega-3 is a wonderful idea, and if it worked for a patient, I, I would be thrilled by that. The data is not so consistent, and I'm not sure what the role would be, but I have no objection to adding it and seeing if it works. And, of course, at the end of the day, if it doesn't and it ends up with salad dressing, there's not a lot lost. Yeah. Does it, were you impressed by some of the data that it delays the onset of psychosis? Is that, is that a possibility? Well, uh, certainly there's a, a lack of uh, gentle treatments uh, for this, and uh, this uh, has the potential for helping uh, some folks, and the downside is very low. So for a particular person, it may work out, but I don't think we have enough uh, data to suggest that we should be giving it to everybody. Is there a role for St. John's wort in the treatment of bipolar depression? No, no compelling data that I know of. Okay. How about inositol in the treatment of bipolar depression? There really is uh, data for inositol. And here it's a little tricky. There's some from uh, our colleagues at Pittsburgh, some from Israel, and some from our own group. Again, it, it's not always consistent, but the important thing to understand about inositol 
is that it does often take substantial doses. So people will be taking 10 to 30 grams per day of inositol. And that can also be quite, quite hard on your GI tract. But if you can get to those doses, I, I think it is a treatment that has evidence for it. On that note, our time has gone by very quickly. Thanks to both of you, Les and Gary, for your, your insights and your responses to the questions. And thanks to all of our participants for joining us at W Neuroscience CME. And we enjoy your questions. We certainly thank you for your participation. And uh, please uh, consult to our webpage for future programs uh, coming soon. Thank you very much.